good morning again and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Thankful that you were able to be here with us today. I'm thankful uh, to our Lord for each one of you. I'm amazed at what God is doing amongst His people. I'm always encouraged anytime we come together as the body of Christ, whether it's something like the men's retreat or even a baby shower or other opportunities we gather, we have to gather as believers, I'm always encouraged to be with you. Uh, I'm especially encouraged, I, I, you know, it's, 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 as fun as those things are, the other things that we do, I'm especially encouraged when we gather on Sunday, especially on Sundays when we have communion and church lunch. But that's not today, right? Uh, that's next Sunday, the first Sunday of the month. This happens to be the fifth Sunday, the, uh, and, I, and it's funny because fifth Sundays kind of steal my joy. And don't get me wrong, I do enjoy the extra time in the morning. I, I do enjoy getting up maybe a little bit later, a, a few minutes later, but my internal clock thinks that it should be the first Sunday. There's something extra special about gathering around the Lord's table and breaking bread with all of you. I, I love it on, in, on any occasion, but I especially love it uh, especially love it on Sunday morning when we do it together, when we have church lunch and those things. So I just love to gather with, with God's people. I love gathering with God's people, but I do recognize, let me, this is, I'm going to turn a corner here for a second. I do recognize that gathering with you is challenging at times. You know, humans, as hu- humans, we can be persnickety at times, can we not? Uh, Christians, funny enough, can be especially fussy with one another. Uh, said another way, we like things how we like them. And when things don't go our way, we get a little fussy. And we're kind of like babies that way, when we don't get what we want. That's supposed to be a joke. Nobody's laughing. I just fell flat. Um, but we all have expectations of one another, right? We all have expectations of the church. Many times, those expectations are personal preferences that we project upon one another. We expect our church to be friendly. That's right. I mean, I do. I expect us to be friendly. I expect to be greeted when I arrive. I want to, I want to have one of you guys come talk to me. Many of us prefer to sit in a, in a certain spot. I can look around and I can see certain people in certain spots. We, we have this expectation. Some, some prefer that coffee not be drank in the sanctuary. By the way, in my cup I have tea, so it's not really coffee. It's tea for my throat because I have trouble sometimes. But some, some, want to sing, some want to sing songs of a certain style, not too fast, not too slow. Some like drums, and other, others think that drums are the devil's instrument. Uh, you, you, you see, sometimes our expectations, though, rise to the level of, of setting spoken and unspoken rules within the body of Christ. Many times, these rules are not based on anything from Scripture. They're purely based on preferences. Now, in reality... Our preferences are not always a bad thing. There are certain things that, about a church, that there are certain things that a church may want to avoid in a particular culture. There are some activities that may cause people to stumble, therefore we avoid them. Those things may not be explicitly excluded in Scripture, yet wisdom tells us to avoid them. Truly, we should have preferences that set us apart from the culture around us. Yet, when we do this... Here's the danger. When we do this, we are in, the da- in danger of raising our man-made expectations and preferences to the level of a scriptural mandate. For example, 
We may not prefer to use drums as a part of, of worship, but there's nothing in Scripture to prevent them. As a matter of fact, Psalm 153-6 through encourages the use of percussion in our worship. It says, praise Him with tambourine and dancing. Praise Him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with clashing cymbals. A church worship... But, but, but here's, the, here's what, I'm, what I'm getting at. We would not want to raise that preference to the level of a scriptural command, right? A, a, a preference not to have drums, so to speak. A church worship group that uses uh, percussion instruments is not automatically the devil's band, is what I'm getting at. Now, but that's not my point. That's not my point, funny enough. I want to use this, I, I use this as an example to point out the human tendency toward legalism, which is the, at the heart of our study today, at the heart of our study this morning in Matthew chapter 5. Legalism is, a, is our tendency to keep our personal interpretation of God's law for the purpose of finding favor, whether it be salvific or otherwise, but it, for the purpose of finding favor with God. Now, we are also being legalistic when we hold others to our, to our personal interpretation of the law. Further, it is not legalistic, let me, let me say it this way too, it is not legalistic to desire to keep God's, interpre- God's interpretation of His law and desire that our fellow Christians do the same out of love for Him and others. Now, Hopefully this will all make sense as we keep going. This morning we're returning to our study in the Gospel of Matthew, the King, of the, the King and His glory. Now we're currently studying the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, the King's Kingdom Manifesto. Today we're continuing to study the crux of, of Jesus' main argument in His sermon. Now two weeks ago, we took a break last week, Keith preached through Psalms, the Psalms, but two weeks ago we began looking at Matthew 5, 17-20. We're going to continue looking at those verses over, the next, over this, this week and, and next week. Now, just a heads up, in this sermon I had hoped to get a little further in our outline, but today we'll mostly consider what it means that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So we're going to, we're going to camp on that one phrase and try to understand that. So let me read our text. This, by the way, is Jesus' main proposition statement of the Sermon on the Mount. This is his main proposition statement. He, it, he, or Matthew writes, Jesus says, starting in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now that we're going to focus on, that, on those words here this morning. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning and praise you. Father, I pray you would give us understanding this morning, especially around this topic of legalism and understanding the law, understanding how the Lord Jesus fulfilled the law. 
and pray you would give us uh, just some insight, the, the insight that we need into your word through your Holy Spirit this morning in Christ's name, amen. Well, every state in the union has them on their books. We've all heard of them. They're obsolete and downright dumb laws. Did you know that you are prohibited to open an umbrella on a street or play dominoes on Sunday in Alabama? It is also illegal to throw confetti or spray silly silly string in Mobile. Dogs are not allowed to bark after 6 p.m. in Little Rock, Arkansas. Here in Florida, uh, we, we don't get off easy. We cannot sing in public places while wearing a bathing suit. We cannot skateboard without a license. In Gainesville, Georgia, it is illegal to eat fried chicken in any way but with your hands. In Quitman, Georgia, chickens are not permitted to cross the road, so there's no jokes about them crossing the road. In Hawaii, no billboards are allowed, and you cannot place a coin behind your ear. In Idaho, it is prohibited to gift a box of chocolates weighing more than 50 pounds. Giving whiskey to dogs is prohibited, and you cannot fly kites within the city limits of Chicago, Illinois. I love this one. This is my favorite, by the way. The value of pi is 4, not 3.141592, and you, you get the picture. They think they can change, in, in, in Indiana, they think that they can change the laws of geometry. No false promises are allowed in Louisiana. Nobody is to step out of a plane mid-flight, and Christmas decorations must not be up past January 14th in Maine. Thankfully, there's no mention of how early you can put them up. So, I guess you could argue that you don't have them up late, you just have them up early, right? You like that? I like that. In Minnesota, nobody is allowed to cross state lines with a duck atop their head. In a place called Mole, Missouri, it is prohibited to frighten a baby. It is actually illegal to sing off-key, and bingo games cannot last more than five hours in North Carolina. That's crazy. Actually, I think we probably played bingo games more than five hours in North Carolina. Lastly, it is prohibited to harass Bigfoot in the state of Washington. Now, I find, and I hope you do, find these laws to be quite hilarious. But I'm certain that they all have some sort of story behind them. Most of us understand, though, the need for laws, right? Even if we disagree on the level of detail and nuance. Some of us argue for more laws, and some of us argue for less laws. Some of us hate that we have to wear our seatbelts and motorcycle helmets while others see the need for our... Some, some of us hate to be told to wear those seatbelts and motorcycle helmets, but others see the need to do those, to, to wear those things, right? Or have to make others do so. I think back to my days growing up. I'm not sure my mother knew what a car seat was, right? I don't know about you guys, some of you older folks in here. She didn't make me buckle up. She even allowed me to sit on the passenger door handle. I don't even remember her locking the door. Now, I used to, I used to love riding, if you, if you remember in the old cars, I used to r- love riding in the spot behind the back seat under the back glass. You remember that? That, that spot up there? I could gaze at the stars for hours and on long, uh, long road trips. My mother wasn't uh, a bad mother. She just did what most poor, uninformed parents did back then. They let their kids do whatever in the car. Today... <laughs> Today, we live in a society that would never dream of letting our kids unbuckled, ride unbuckled in a car. Here's, a, here's, what, here's what I want you to think about. 
Have you ever thought about it this way? Every family, every church, every city or nation is defined by its rules and laws. Have you ever thought about it that way? Some are defined by their lack of laws. Others are defined by their laws governing every detail of life. Here in America, here in the United States, here in Florida, I can't think of one thing that we do that isn't governed by some law. I was amazed when we went to Guatemala this past summer. We went to a small carnival in the town where Pablo, my son-in-law, grew up. The, the rides were fun, but to say they were sketchy might, be, might not be going far enough. For example, they had a Ferris wheel that might have been more dangerous than Travis Pastrana's backyard. It's crazy. There's not a city or state in our country that would allow that ride. During Jesus' day, Israel was much the same way. They had laws that governed almost every aspect of their lives. They adhered to the law as prescribed by the scribes and Pharisees. Jewish life in, in, in Jesus' day, Jewish life was completely defined by their interpretation of God's law. The Jews of his day had divided the Old Testament into two categories. They had 248 positive commands along with 365 negative ones. The, the scribes and Pharisees engaged in long and heated debates about the law. Uh, they, they would even spend time arguing with one another about which laws in each category were the most important and which were the, easy, the least. They would rank them. You see, uh, unfortunately, they misunderstood and they misapplied God's holy law. They were legalistic in their application of the law. Even today, there are those who misunderstand and misapply God's law. Here's what we need to understand or recognize. It's not that God's law is bad or harsh. No, actually, God's law is good. And what we have to recognize is He gave His law for our good. Yet, men twist His law in something grotesque and legalistic and unloving. It's not God's law that's bad. It's our interpretation. It's our twisting of the law that makes it grotesque, legalistic, and unloving. Truly, the attitude we have toward the law determines whether it's legalistic. I believe an illustration by Charles Ryrie, I don't usually, do, I don't usually quote him, but here we go. I, I believe an illustration by Charles Ryrie will help us understand the difference. He says this, A serious athlete has to keep training rules. Most athletes are glad to keep them, rigid as they may be, for the sheer love of the sport. A few athletes conform to make the, team, make the team and glorify showing off self. The former attitude is love. Love for the game, right? And the latter is legalism. Both attitudes are toward the same rigid code and both result in conformity. Having to conform to a law is, it, it is, is not of itself legalism. When we conform to a law for outward reasons, like looking good to others, we are being legalistic. When we expect others to conform for reasons other than our love for them, we are being legalistic. Conforming to God's law, now get this, this is, this is the last part of the quote. Conforming to God's law because of our love for Him and love for others is not legalism, end quote. 
is not legalism, end quote. As Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he confronted the legalistic interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees. In doing so, he did not lessen or reduce the law's demands. Actually, he demonstrated that the law demands something much greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. I want you to get that. He demonstrated that the law, God's law, demands something much greater than the righteousness and the scribes, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It actually demanded perfect righteousness. You see, they had twisted the law into their own grotesque interpretation. And in doing so, they had cheapened and reduced the law to a set of man-made rules that they could follow. They missed that God's law is perfect and that it requires perfect righteousness, the very righteousness of God. Now earlier in the sermon, Jesus had said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's the point. Those who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, a righteousness that could only be provided through the cross, those who thirst for that righteousness shall be satisfied. You see, the law is our tutor unto Christ. It's our tutor unto Christ. Therefore, uh, Galatians 3.24, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor unto Christ so that we may be justified by faith. You see, we don't trust, as Christians, we're not to trust our own righteousness by works of the law, but by Jesus' perfect righteousness imputed to us. You might call that kingdom righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 makes this clear. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Church, this is actually Jesus' main point in these verses, Matthew 5.17-20. In these verses, in Matthew 5.17-20, King Jesus reveals two shocking truths about kingdom righteousness. First, you must recognize that kingdom righteousness completely concurs with Old Testament righteousness. And we're also going to see, we started looking at that last time, and we're going to see a little bit more of it today. We're also going to see that, that kingdom righteousness completely challenge, or comprehensively challenges pharisaical righteousness, legalistic righteousness, if you will. So let's look back, look back at Matthew 5.17. Kingdom righteousness completely concurs with the Old Testament. Jesus says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, you may recall that Matthew 5, 17 through 20 form a transition or the transition from Jesus' introduction to the main body of the sermon. In, in those verses, or in these verses, he, or in the prior verses, that is, he had given the Beatitudes in Matthew, from Matthew 5, 3 through 12. The Beatitudes are simply the description of following Christ. They start from the very beginning of salvation and progress to the point of suffering persecution for your faith in Christ. Then, in Matthew 5, 13-16, He told His disciples, He charged His disciples to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
You see, Jesus' disciples, those who follow Christ, are to live in such a way that they would preserve our current fallen world from a greater rate of decay due to sin. His disciples, his followers, are also uh, called to let their light shine in such a way that they may see God, that, that the world may see their good works and glorify uh, the Father who is in heaven. In heaven. Now, here's the problem. Here the, here's the question that needs to be answered. What defines good works? What defines good works? How do we as Christians know that we are being salt and light? And what is the authoritative source for understanding good works? Now you ought to be thinking, it's the law, right? But these questions bring us to Matthew 5.17. Jesus begins to answer these questions by saying that He did not come to abolish the Old Testament. Said another way, he didn't come to abolish the Old Testament law and the prophets. Again, look at your text in Matthew 5.17. He says, he says I came. I, did, I do not think that I came. I did not come. Clearly from this text, Jesus understood the purpose and ramifications of his coming. Last time we saw that he understood he had been sent by the Father and that he was in fact the Son of God. He knew that the Father had sent him into this world to redeem this world. We looked at, at John 3, 16 through 18 and found that before giving this sermon, uh, Jesus had met with a man named Nicodemus. And he, and he told him he did not send him into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And he who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, Jesus knew that his coming would bring, in fact, judgment to the world. And he had told Nicodemus that this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and that men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. They, they loved bad works. They loved, they loved their evil works. So as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he completely understood his mission in the world. And he knew that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill them. Now, we're going to look at that in a deeper way here in just a few minutes. Now, what is the law and the prophets? Well, last time we saw the law and the prophets is the, includes the entirety of the Old Testament canon. Jesus affirmed the same Old Testament canon that we use in a slightly different form. In Matthew 23, 35, he declared that the Old Testament starts in Genesis and ends with Chronicles, which matches the Jewish Old Testament, which matches our Old Testament with some differences in order and division. In effect, Jesus is saying that he did not come, in fact, to nullify the Old Testament. In other words, he didn't come to change anything about the Old Testament. He didn't come to reinterpret it. He didn't come to change anything about it. As such, what we have to recognize is that the Old Testament stands on its own. We don't need the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. Now, listen to the wise words of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, we, should, we must never drive a wedge between the Old Testament and the New. We must never feel that the New makes the Old unnecessary. I feel increase, increasingly that it is re very regrettable that the, old, that the New Testament should have ever been printed alone. Because we tend to fall into the serious error of thinking that because we are Christians, we do not need the Old Testament. We do not need the Old Testament. Uh, I lost my place. 
Yeah, it was the Holy Spirit. That's what I'm after. <laughs> Where am I at? Oh, it was the Holy Spirit who led the early church, which was mainly Gentile, to incorporate the Old Testament Scriptures with their New Testament Scriptures and to regard them as all as one. They are indissolubly bound together, and there are many senses in which it can be said that the New Testament cannot be truly understood except in the light that is provided by the Old. For example, it is impossible to make anything of the epistle to the Hebrews unless we know our Old Testament Scriptures, end quotes. So, according to Jesus, here in Matthew 5.17, everything stands in the Old Testament. He goes on to say in Matthew 5.18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, we're going to return to Matthew 5.18 later, but for now, we need to answer the question, and I want you to understand what it means that Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, this is, this is actually a continuation of the first truth that we started looking at last time. Kingdom righteousness completely concurs with, the Old, Test with Old Testament righteousness because Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament. Now, again, we touched on this point last time, but we need to deal with this topic in a more in-depth way. I would argue that this particular topic is one of the most under, misunderstood in Christianity. And that's why this is so important for us to get. At the end of Matthew 5.17, Jesus says that He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Our Lord makes the claim that He, in and of Himself, is the fulfillment of everything taught by the Old Testament prophets starting with Moses. Now, the Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 2, or 1, 18-20, he affirms this incredible truth. He says, he says this in, in verse 20, this is 2 Corinthians 1, 20, For as many as the, are the promises of God, in Him, that is in Christ, Jesus Christ, he says that in verse 19, in Him they are yes. Therefore also through Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones describes this as finality. All the promises of God in this wonderful person, that is Jesus, are yea and amen. That, in effect, is what our Lord is saying here. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this. So, let's deal with the question of how Jesus is the fulfillment or the finality of the law. In His incarnation... Jesus fulfilled all the law. Now, He fulfilled the moral aspects of the law, He fulfilled the judicial aspects of the law, and He fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law. Now, last week, last time, last time I preached, we saw that the law, in all its aspects, is inextricably tied to the character of God as revealed in creation. Let me say that again. The law... God's law, in all its aspects, is inextricably tied to the character of God as revealed in creation. As such, the law, as exemplified by the Ten Commandments, are founded in God's creation as shown in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In the words of John MacArthur, 
He says the rest of the Old Testament gives a wondrous, perfect, and complete picture of the coming King and His kingdom. And Jesus the King came to fulfill it in every detail. So, so we see God's character. We see it revealed in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And the rest of the Old Testament gives a complete picture of Jesus as the King coming in His kingdom. As such, what we have to recognize is the Old Testament is not deficient in any way. That it is exactly what God intended to reveal. In it, God revealed His Son, the Lord Jesus. Uh, the, the New Testament actually tells us that Jesus is the theme of the Old Testament. We saw that in, in Luke 24-27. And He reaffirmed it in Luke 24-44 when He says that all things which are written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In John 5.39, he confronted the Jewish leaders saying, it is these, it is the Scriptures. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But Jesus said, is it these that bear witness of me? The writer of Hebrews also affirmed the Old Testament was written about Jesus when he says, in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. That's Hebrews 10.7. Again, we must ask the question then, what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament? Well, the Greek word translated fulfill has several different nuances which make it difficult to understand the exact meaning. But I would argue that Jesus means that He is carrying out or bringing to full expression the teaching of the Old Testament. As such, he re He's revealing its true meaning. Again, we need to recognize that the Jewish establishment had grossly misinterpreted God's law. And as such, their representation was a gross misrepresentation of God's intended purpose for His law. Now, there are a couple of suggestions of how Jesus fulfilled the law. Some believe that He came to fulfill, fulfill by His teaching. He gave a complete picture of what the law truly meant. In this view, the Old Testament is, a, is considered a divine sketch or an outline which he, gave to give, he came to give color or detail. But what we have to recognize is that Jesus nor his apostles ever added, never, they never added any basic teaching to the law and the prophets. They simply explained God's original intent. Others believe that he came to fulfill by meeting the demands of the law. Now it is true that he completely obeyed every part of the law. He was perfectly and absolutely righteous. He was in no way a transgressor of the law. So what we have to recognize is there's truth to both of these suggestions. He and the apostles after him taught the right understanding and interpretation of God's law, and they enlightened their followers and challenged their detractors with the full meaning of the law. And it is true that he perfectly obeyed every aspect of the law. No accusation of law-breaking or lawlessness could ever be pointed at him. He is the perfect model of righteousness and justice. And Martin Lloyd-Jones rightly states, he had, he, he had lived it fully, he had obeyed it perfectly, there was nothing, not a jot nor tittle, uh, in a connection with it which he had made, which he had to the slightest extent broken, or failed to fulfill, you see that in his life, as well as his birth, he was made subject to the law. So, 
Martin Lloyd-Jones and other theologians affirm that Jesus was the perfect model of righteousness and just, justice. That, and it's true, it is true, it is true, but I don't think that's Jesus' main emphasis here. Or in Luke 24:44, where he said all, that all things are written, uh, that were written by the Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You see, his main emphasis is that he himself embodies the law and the prophets fully. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. John MacArthur puts it this way. Jesus did not simply teach it fully or exemplify it fully. He was it fully. He did not come to simply teach righteousness or to model righteousness, he came as divine righteousness. What he said and what he did reflected who he is. End quote. Now, there are three ways that Jesus fulfilled the law. Now, as we begin to consider how Jesus fulfilled the law, we need to consider why the law actually existed. You may recall there was no law prior to Moses. God gave the law 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham and his seed. Now you might say, the law exemplified God's holy character and his kingdom expectations. Ultimately, the law showed the sinfulness of sin and man's need for grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, the law was given in a sense, in order to show men that they could never justify themselves before God, and in order that we might be brought to Christ. In Paul's words, it was meant to be our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, end quote. Now, here's what we, here, here are the three ways, that we're going to go through three ways that Jesus fulfilled the law. First, Jesus fulfilled the law's moral demands. Jesus fulfilled the law's moral demands. You may recall that last time I showed you how God's law is founded in His holy character revealed in creation. You may also recall that I explained the purpose and true meaning of the, 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 each of the Ten Commandments. For example, we are not to have any gods before Yahweh because He is above and has created all things as revealed in Genesis 1.1. And in Exodus 23, it simply says, you are to have no, gods, no other gods before me. In Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. So there's no gods before him. He created everything. We, uh, we also found that we're not to commit murder because man was made in the image of God. That's, that's Exodus 20.13, you shall not murder. Uh, Genesis 1.27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. We also saw that the weekly Sabbath day observance is rooted in creation as well. You can go back and listen to that sermon, but you may recall that we concluded that God created this world to be at Sabbath rest. Therefore, He instituted the Sabbath as a means of reminding the Israelites of God's intent for His creation. As such, the essence of Sab the Sabbath was not resting or refraining from work. But the Sabbath actually pointed to God's holiness and our dependence upon Him. God created His creation. 
He made his creation according to his holy design and his intention and not working on the Sabbath day reminded man of his total dependence on the Lord. The Sabbath, as Jesus said, was made for man to reflect on his need for God. The Sabbath was made for man and not the man for Sabbath. The Sabbath, that's Mark 2.27. You see, at the cross, at the cross, Jesus fulfilled the requirements of the law. He fulfilled all righteousness. He took our sin upon Himself and suffered the Father's wrath in our place, and we have become the righteousness of God in Him. In Christ, in Christ, this is the point, all believers have entered a permanent salvation rest. And in the future, Jesus will return all the world to a perpetual, permanent Sabbath rest. And in that way, He has fulfilled all righteousness by satisfying the moral requirement of the law. Here's the point. He satisfied the moral requirement of the law. What was the moral requirement of the law? To observe the Sabbath, right? On on the Sabbath day. We are no longer bound to observe the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week Because every day is a Sabbath unto the Lord. He is our Sabbath rest. So He has satisfied the moral demand of the law. It's in Him that we uh, find our rest. And you can can look at every every law in the same way. In Matthew 11.28-30, we read it earlier, He invites the downtrodden to come, uh, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's why Paul said in Colossians 2.16-17, Therefore no one is to judge you in food and drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are only a shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The reason the substance belongs to Christ, the reason why we don't observe a Sabbath day is because Christ has fulfilled the law's moral demands. He is our rest. You get the point? So not only did He fulfill the law's moral demands, excuse me, He also fulfilled the law's judicial commands. Some of you may be wondering about the judicial requirements of the law. After God gave the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, you will find a series of judicial laws starting in Exodus chapter 21. For example, in Exodus 21, 28-36, you'll find a series of laws concerning oxen. It's just, it's, if, you know, if, you're, if, if, the, uh, ox, if a man opens a, a pit, and, and if a man digs a pit and does not cover it over, an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restitution. It's all this stuff about, about oxen. Another example is Leviticus 20, verse 10, where the man and a woman, where the man who, and a woman who commit adultery were to be put to death. We don't do that anymore, right, here in the United States. Now, what we have to recognize as you read through those laws what we have to recognize is that there's been a, a, a lot of confusion over the year over, over these laws and, and over, over other laws in the, in the Old Testament. These judicial laws. People want to know, and people will even throw it up. Well, you don't, you don't do this anymore, do you? Right? Why would you do this? Why would you say that homosexuality is, is a sin when you don't obey this? Right? You get that. You get that argument a lot. Uh, people want to know why the judicial law doesn't apply to us. Well, what we have to recognize is that God set Israel apart to be an example to the nations. 
especially the, the nations they displaced in the promised land. Remember, when Israel went in the promised land, there were already people there, and they displaced them. So, so they were to be an example. They were to be different. They were to be set apart. Therefore, through Moses, God gave His law code, His judicial law. Said another way, He gave them the application of the Ten Commandments. You might say it this way, God's law applied. John MacArthur states it this way, God's judicial law was given to provide unique identity for Israel as a nation that belonged to Jehovah. The, the laws relating to agriculture, settlement of disputes, uh, diet, cleanliness, dress, and such things were special standards by which His chosen people were to live before the Lord and apart from the world. End quote. Now what, here's, here's what we need to see. In a similar way, each nation, even today, modern nations, have their law code, right? In countries like the United States, Britain, Australia, uh, our law code is generally based on the Ten Commandments, generally. Now, the Ten Commandments are universally binding to all mankind, right? That's, it's universally binding because they're rooted in creation. We've already seen that. For example... The Ten Commandments say, do not steal. That's, a, that's, a, that, that, that's universally binding. That's God's law. Now, our laws, a nation's laws, specify different kinds of theft along with the punishment for breaking those laws. American citizens are bound by American laws. Right? It said, when we, thou, that thou shalt not steal, or do not steal, is applied judicially. Israel's law code or judicial law was binding to them as citizens of Israel. When Israel ceased to be a nation, after they crucified their Messiah, their law code was no longer binding to anyone. Does that make sense? Because they rejected their Messiah, God used Rome, the Roman Empire, to destroy and, and destroy Jerusalem and scatter them. He set them aside until a later time. Now, during His earthly ministry, Jesus had vehemently warned them that when they rejected the chief cornerstone, the, the kingdom uh, of God would be taken away from them and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. He had warned them. Therefore, Jesus' death and resurrection triggered this warning, making their judicial law obsolete. Do you see that? That's why we don't follow their judicial law, because it doesn't apply to us. The Ten Commandments, God's, God's holy law applies, but the judicial law doesn't, because it's obsolete. I would argue that Jesus fulfilled Israel's judicial law. Now get this. He fulfilled Israel's judicial law by paying the ultimate judicial penalty on the cross. Do you all understand that? He paid the ultimate the ultimate judicial penalty of the law, of Israel's law, on the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones agrees by saying one of the ways in which the law has to be fulfilled is that its punishment of sin must be carried out. This punishment is death, and that is why he died, end quote. So with his death, with, the, with Israel being scattered, 
their law, their judicial law was made obsolete. So he has fulfilled the judicial requirements of the law by his death. Jesus also fulfilled the law's ceremonial obligation. After the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., there was no longer any way to carry out the God's ceremonial law. You may recall from your study, your own study, that the ceremonial law governed Israel's worship. If you look through the book of Leviticus, you'll find that they were commanded to perform various sacrifices to atone for sin. These sacrifices were performed at the tabernacle and later in the temple. They were performed by the Levitical priesthood. Leviticus, Levitical priesthood, right? When the temple was destroyed by the Romans, they could no longer perform those sacrifices. But before that occurred, according to Matthew's testimony, the veil was torn when Jesus died on the cross. We see that in Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. On the cross, here's the point, on the cross, Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for the sins of man. He paved the way to enter the Holy of Holies. That's the reason the veil was split. He paved the way into the Holy of Holies. The writer of Hebrews says that, that therefore, brothers, he proclaims to his brothers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what is he, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our body washed with pure water. Now, here's the point that the the writer of Hebrews is saying, is that when Jesus died on the cross, the Levitical priestly sacrificial system ended. He fulfilled all of it. The blood of bulls and goats never atoned for man's sin, but looked forward to a greater and more perfect sacrifice, Jesus Himself on the cross. As the writer of Hebrews declares, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But he also says in Hebrews 10.10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of of the blood or of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see, they had to continually go back to the temple. They had to continually make sacrifice for their sins. Jesus did this once for all. When Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, died on the cross, there was absolutely no more need for these Levitical sacrifices. And as such, Jesus fulfilled the law's ceremonial obligations. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. Jesus, by His death, and all He has done, is an absolute fulfillment of all these types and shadows. He is the high priest. He is the offering. He is the sacrifice. He has presented His blood in heaven so that the whole of the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Him. End quote. As a side note, for those who have rejected Jesus as their sacrifice, as their perfect sacrifice, as the perfect sacrifice, the sacrificial system still applies. 
Again, I find Martin Lloyd-Jones to be helpful. He says, unless I see all this fulfilled in Christ, unless He is my burnt offering, unless He is my sacrifice, unless He is my everything, all this ceremonial law still applies to me and I shall be held responsible unless I perform it. But seeing it all fulfilled and carried out in Him, I say I'm fulfilling it all by believing in Him and by subjecting myself to Him. That is the position with regard to the ceremonial law. End quote. I hope this is helpful to see how Christ has fulfilled the moral law, He's fulfilled the judicial law, and He's fulfilled the ceremonial law, and to see why these things, how they apply, and how they don't apply to us. So here's the question as we wrap up today. If Jesus has fulfilled the law, then what is the Christian's relationship to the law? If Jesus has fulfilled the law, then what is the Christian's relationship to the law? I would argue that Jesus and His apostles repeated most of the commandments, most of the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. And we'll see many of these repeats in the Sermon on the Mount, such as, Thou shalt not murder or commit adultery. The, the Apostle Paul calls this the law of Christ. In Galatians 6.2, he says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We obey the law of Christ, by obeying the two greatest commandments, which sum up the law and the prophets. He says that in Luke 10.27. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We obey these two commands by understanding that they sum up the law. You see, Obedience to God's law, and this gets back to what we talked about with legalism at the beginning of the sermon. Obedience to God's law shows my love for God and shows my love for my neighbor. I don't obey the law of Christ. I don't obey His law out of coercion or because I believe He will think better of me. As Christ, or in Christ, He treats me as a firstborn son. And as His Son, as His firstborn Son, I obey Him because I love Him, and I know that He knows what's best for me. And I know that He knows what's best for my neighbor, and therefore how to love my neighbor, and therefore I want to obey Him. Again, I find Martin Lloyd-Jones to be helpful on this point. He says this, there is nothing more fatal than to regard holiness and sanctification as experiences to be received. No holiness means being righteous. And being righteous means keeping the law. Now we've seen that's the law of Christ for the Christian. Therefore, if your so-called grace, which you say you have received, does not make you keep the law, you have not received grace. You, have, you may have received a psychological experience, but you have never received the grace of God. What is grace? What is grace? This is gold, by the way. What is grace? It is the marvelous gift of God, which having delivered a man from the curse of the law, enables him to keep it and to be righteous as Christ was righteous. For he kept the law, that'd be Christ, he kept the law perfectly. Grace is that which brings me to love God, 
And if I love God, I long to keep His commandments. He hath my commandments and keepeth them, Christ said. It is He that loveth me, end quote. Beloved, do you see what is being said here? We keep the law because we love Christ. And He loves us. He loved us first. Beloved, it is this reason, for this reason, that Jesus contended for the permanence of God's holy law. The reason in 5.18, He says, For I truly say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until it is accomplished. I mean, what you have to recognize is that the law is rooted in His holiness. And His holiness is never going to change. As we close, uh, this, this, these verses have become a bit of a... Uh, verses, we've, we've repeated them two or three times today, but I want to remind you of Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28-30. It says, Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am humble, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Some of you are burdened by your works of law. You're weary and you're heavy laden trying to obey. But Jesus says, come to Him. You're here today and maybe you're burdened by your sin. You have guilt from disobeying. You have guilt because you can't obey the law. You are weary and you're heavy laden because of your past and present sinful actions. If you're in that position, He beckons you to come to Him. He beckons you to come to Him where you will find rest. Rest for your weary souls. Perhaps you're here and you believe that you can do the works of the law. You believe that you can find favor with God. Yet, no matter how, or no, no matter how hard you work, all you see is the law's judicial standard. You're weighed down knowing that, that you have not lived up to the law's requirements. <laughs> Jesus beckons you to come where you'll find rest for your weary soul. Perhaps you're a Christian who've trusted, you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, yet you're still struggling with a legalistic understanding of the law and it's stealing your joy. You ever seen people like that? They have no joy because they, they see the legalistic standard of the law or they have a legalistic understanding of the law and they have no joy because they know that they can never perfectly obey it. Jesus beckons you to trust completely in Him. I hope you've seen through this sermon, the work is finished. In Christ it is yes and amen. His yoke is easy and His burden is light. In Him you will find rest. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this opportunity. Lord, I, um, as Keith is fond of saying, I pray that a better sermon than I have preached has been preached today. I pray that your people would walk away with a 
a little bit of better understanding of the law and grace. And when Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. How wonderful those words really are. That in Christ, the law's demands have been satisfied. The law's moral demands. And the law's judicial demands. And the law's ceremonial demands. That in Christ, all of those have been satisfied. And that if we have faith in Him, and that if we are in Him, we have been made firstborn sons. Father, I pray this morning or this early afternoon that we would walk away having found rest in these promises. In the promises of Christ. And that we see them as yes and amen. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.